0: Hello, and welcome back to Nature's Wonders. I'm your host, Will, and today we're joined with Michael Kong, who will be talking all about his amazing Nepenthes today. Please stay tuned until the end, and thank you for listening. This podcast is sponsored by Corals Anonymous, Aquachar, and Live Aquaria. How are you doing today? Hello, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. So can you give me a little background and bio into your life and how you got into the hobby you're in today?
1: Yeah, so my name is Michael. Um, I grow and sell carnivorous plants, and I got into it quite a few years ago. So as a kid, my dad had some Sarancinia, which are the American pitcher plants, and we always had some just like in the outdoors. And, you know, then eventually I discovered Nepenthes, which are the indoor pitcher plant. Those are more found in the Asia area. And once I kind of got a little bit more of an understanding of what they were and what type of options were, I found that there was a huge amount of diversity within the Nepenthes genus. And I got one, I got a Nepenthes sanguinea and I was growing it on the windowsill for a while and that really got me hooked. Um, I'm originally from the Bay Area. So we actually have one of the nation's biggest hub of carnivorous plant people. Um, California carnivores really pushed the industry um, in its infancy to where it is now. And I was able to go in person and see the carnivorous plants in person and all the different varieties and genuses. And from there, I kind of got hooked and I started getting a lot more than penthes, I upgraded different spaces around the house. And then, um, just this last summer, we eventually built a greenhouse and then moved all the plants out to there.
0: That's awesome. Have you always been interested in like plants and other nature things, or is it more of just, uh, you kind of, once you got your first picture plant, that's when things really started to go.
1: Yeah, so my whole family has really been into animals basically for our whole lives, you know, we had everything like tarantulas, we had chameleons, monitors and um definitely was always interested in like kind of the biology side of things. I really got interested more in the plant side of things when I realized that you could have a lot of these different and unusual looking plants that you could grow indoors. I really feel like I'm more of an indoor grower than kind of an outside one. I feel like I like to be able to control a little bit more of the um, conditions that they're in, and kind of be able to see them when it after the the sun sets. And so, really, after getting that first Nepenthes, I, I really, really got hooked on them and started kind of down this this plant journey. That's awesome. So before um, we started talking, you mentioned something about a
0: jellyfish farm. Can you give a little detail about that?
1: Yeah, so during my undergraduate, I actually um, was majoring in marine biology and earth science. And through my marine bio side of my degree, um, I got really involved with the Monterey Bay Aquarium. So I was doing an internship there. I was there for quite a few years, um, and I was working with the jellyfish husbandry side of of the of the business in the aquarium. And so um, during this time, we had a temporary gallery. This was back in about I think two thousand and maybe 13 or so. Um, So they have rotating galleries at the Monterey Bay. Um, For this time, this was the the jellies exhibit. They have a permanent one, and then they had this uh, kind of more tropical um, jellyfish exhibit. So I was helping do work there. I was doing a lot of the animal husbandry, a lot of the upkeep for the tanks, and then kind of on the backside of the husbandry. Um, But I was also doing some research um, and getting a little bit involved on that side. So Monterey Bay actually was able to bring in the South American sea nettle, and I was working on an effort to figure out, okay, how do we breed it? How do we propagate this type of jellyfish? And, you know, doing some research in how jellyfish are being bred and some of the factors that um, are involved in terms of, you know, how do male versus female get get created. How many um, jellyfish can come from one kind of, they call it a potusis. Um, So it was really interesting and I, I really enjoyed that time. That's
0: really interesting. Do you have a favorite type of jellyfish?
1: Yeah, I definitely love the South American Sea Nettle. It holds a special part in my heart. Um, But I definitely love the nettles and stuff. But, you know, moon jellies, I feel like, are a classic. They're a staple. They're indestructible. Um, But I definitely love the nettles. Um, Part of my favorite, part of my experience uh, when I was doing animal husbandry, in Monterey was uh, we would actually feed jellyfish to other jellyfish, as kind of bizarre as that sounds. Um, you know, similar to how fish eat other fish, jellyfish eat other jellyfish and um, nettles in specifically, you know, part of their diet is our other moon jellies or other types of jellyfish. And so we'd get a long stick because, you know, the tanks are, you know, 10, 12 feet tall. And we would feed, you know, hand feed the the sea nettles, the, the jellyfish or fish or whatever they were getting for the day. And that definitely was a special experience that while I was there. Do you think it's harder to keep the jellyfish or Nepenthes? Oh, jellyfish, hands down. Definitely the aquarium mode is very, like, I, I realized we had aquariums growing up, saltwater tanks and freshwater tanks, and there's always just such an element of upkeep that is required when you do those type of specialty holidays hol- uh, um, hobbies. But especially for jellyfish, they need super clean water. They need special tanks. You know, there can't be corners or they get stuck in there. You know, they're, they're still planktonic at the end of the day, so they can't really propulse themselves in a certain direction. So, you know, there's a lot of upkeep that has to be done with the jellyfish, which really make them kind of a pain to, to keep. Mm-hmm. So you
0: built your entire greenhouse, correct?
1: We did. So this is a project that we did last summer. Um, So I started my MBA and I realized that before I wanted to go to school, I wanted to kind of do this little investment right up in the front and build my, uh, build a greenhouse. So Previously, before the greenhouse, um, you know, I was growing on the windowsill for a little bit, but I definitely was like, oh, I want to find a way to, like, optimize the conditions that the plants are in. And, you know, uh, Nepenthes are tropical pitcher plants. They come from normally, like, Asia area. Um, There are a lot of other places that carnivorous plants come from, but in general, the Nepenthes are a type of pitcher plant that really would enjoy or be better in high humidity areas. And, you know, growing on the windowsill, like in the Bay Area, we have very good temperatures where that's more feasible. Um, But I definitely wanted to find ways to, find ways to make an environment a little better for them. So initially when I had just a few plants, I got a terrarium, you know, I had misters in there and it was like this cute little three foot by two foot um, tank that I had in my room. And as I slowly got more and more, um, we then eventually converted a room in the house and had a big swamp cooler blow in there to keep the humidity up. We had misters and we had artificial lights. And that was kind of good enough for a while. But as the plants grow, they kind of grow at an exponential rate. So over time, everything just kind of exploded in growth. Everything was, I think, pretty happy. And there came a point where it was like, all right, what's the future of, the, of this collection? You know, it, it things are definitely starting to vine. They get really big. And we really needed a bigger space to put them. And kind of this this room was, it was doable, but it, we just needed a much, much more space. And so the idea was birthed, okay, well, what does it look like if we do a greenhouse? And we are looking to different kits, you know, there's so many different options for greenhouse construction, everything from, you know, are you gonna make it out of glass? Are you gonna have it out of polycarbonate? Are you gonna have more of like a film type thing? And then like, how are you gonna build the structure? Is it gonna be out of wood? Or PVC pipes or plastic. Um, are you gonna build it from scratch? Are you gonna get a pre-made kit? And so we definitely did a lot of the research into all the options, and eventually landed. Okay, like I think it's gonna be a lot cheaper and a lot easier to really just be able to find and build our own. And thankfully, my dad and my grandpa has has carpentry experience, and so we had a little bit of a leg up in that department. And so I found some like kind of very general blueprints of um, a greenhouse that we could build and and we did it. So over the summer, we constructed it, we got all the wood, we stained the wood and um, got all the polycarbonate that we were using and kind of built it over the span of about three months. Wow. So was the whole thing a kit or did you actually just
0: design every part of it?
1: Yeah, so we had some elements that were already designed, you know, you can find some blueprints in terms of like, all right, this is, this is a rough blueprint for, you know, I want a greenhouse from that's 10 feet by 12 feet. And so from there, we were able to kind of maneuver our way through, okay, are there elements from this blueprint that we like that we want to keep for the future? Um, And then our elements we changed. So one of the things that we did change, um, a lot of the greenhouse kits specifically and blueprints in general they go up to eight feet um, but i knew that a lot of nepenthes vine so as nepenthes grow In the wild, they would have um, what we call lower pitchers. And then over time, they kind of grow similar up like tree trunks. And so as Nepenthes get older, they start to vine in which the stem basically and the node between leaves starts to elongate and starts to get um, quite tall. And this is kind of helps the Nepenthes start vining up kind of almost parasitically um, up a tree. And kind of grasp onto there. So I knew a lot of the Nepenthes eventually will start to vine, and some of them have already. Um, you know, these can be vines that are like ten to twenty feet tall. So like they can definitely outgrow any any amount of height. But one of the things I was really adamant on when we built the greenhouse is that I was like, I know that the Nepenthes are going to get really tall. I want to have also the ability to put in a, a second layer of racks just in case down the line. And so we decided to make the the greenhouse two feet taller. So it's now. 10 feet at the sides and then 12 feet in the center. Um, And that was like some of the changes that we made. Um, We also kind of changed the front. Um, I wanted to be able to have exhaust fans in order to keep some of the temperatures in control. And so we kind of built in those little aspects here and there.
0: So from going from inside greenhouse type tent to a larger greenhouse, what do you find the differences are and what's better? than the other one? Is it harder to control in a smaller area or is it harder to control the temperatures and humidity in the larger area?
1: Yeah, it definitely depends. So kind of the setup for the room, we had a big swamp cooler blowing air from into the into the room and then there was like a small little window and it was very much driven by artificial artificial lights like T5s or LEDs. Um, in the greenhouse though, we it's all open, you know, it's natural sunlight. So there's just so much variability that at least you kind of have to anticipate, you know, where are you going to build the greenhouse? Because once you build it, it, it's not going to move anywhere. And, you know, how how are you going to cover it with shade cloth during the summertime? You know, can it get really hot? And so how do you make sure it doesn't overheat? Um, There's definitely a lot of um, temperature control issues. You know, just being out in the sun, Nepenthes have a kind of a smaller window in terms of tolerance. You know, they really like that 80 about 80 degrees during the daytime um there's obviously exceptions within this but uh, we try to get it the daytime between anywhere between 75 to 80 and overheating is a huge huge issue that is not as as bad as uh, indoor growing, so in the greenhouse we we have like the exhaust fans, which I mentioned. We have a big swamp cooler on the back, and I guess if people are not familiar with what a swamp cooler is, um, it kind of blows water over this kind of uh, porous type media, and it sucks in the air from the outside, which is dry, and as it passes through the media, it'll evaporate, it'll absorb the water, and. and push the cooler air because as water evaporates it it cools um so that really has helped cool the greenhouse as well um but yeah there's definitely so much variability it's it's definitely been a learning curve um for the first year of having the greenhouse you know everything from you know where's the sun during this type of year what's the temperatures during this type of year during winter how are we heating the greenhouse because it was getting down to like you know 45 at some some nights and it, that's a little bit on the chilly side for the penthes as well so it's a lot of tinkering and a lot of adjusting on even on a day-by-day basis
0: so after having your greenhouse and building it what are some things that you would change or do differently
1: yeah i definitely say we would make it bigger it was funny when we were making it i was like wow we're gonna have so much room like this is gonna be great and like you know moved everything in there and I tried to repot like most of the things as they went into the greenhouse. I'm a big proponent of like making sure that, um, you know, if things are starting to dry out, like repot it into a bigger pot. You don't need to disturb the root system if that's a concern, but get it into a big enough pot that there's no one plant in your collection that's demanding a, a more rigorous watering schedule. Because, you know, when you have just like a lot of plants, it becomes very like time-consuming to upkeep. And so anything to reduce that amount of upkeep is really helpful down the line. Um, but so I, I was on a kind of a war path to repot like nearly everything into bigger pots as they went to the greenhouse. And this would kind of, again, help regulate the temperature. You know, it was kind of an unknown too um, when we first started up in terms of like, what are the temperatures going to be? What's the humidity going to be? And um, at least it can kind of create a localized humidity dome from the media because the media is always moist for Nepenthes. So, as we repotted everything into bigger pots, I felt like the collection, like, doubled in size because the pots were much, much bigger. And, you know, just even within the last, like, year, like, I feel like everything has really settled in quickly and really exploded in growth. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, where's all the room? Like, now that we're getting more plants or making cuttings or divisions off of plants, it would have been nice if it was, you know, a little bit wider and bigger.
0: Mm-hmm. What, what's your process when you divide plants and propagate them?
1: Yeah, so it really depends on the type. I guess the, the two main plant groups that I work with are Nepenthes and Heliamphora. So on the Nepenthes size, as I kind of mentioned, that Nepenthes start to vine when they get bigger. And so kind of similar to houseplants, you can actually find the nodes on the on the vines and you can cut them and root them, similar to um, how you would for some of the types of houseplants. Um, and... That that's definitely a way to propagate them. Nepenthes also there's a they they make what we call a basal, and so when Nepenthes get bigger, as you can imagine, you know when the Nepenthes starts to vine, it gets very big and it gets it shoots off in one direction, um, and but kind of closer to the root ball, another node most likely will activate. And you'll have kind of two plants or multiple plants on the same pot. And so, for example, um, if you have an old plant, you may have a large basil which is making lower pitchers, and you know that that may be more of like um, you know a few inches off the pot. And then you'll have a vine that's that's trailing off for ten feet or so. But um, you can uh, you can cut the vine, and you can also cut the basil's to propagate them. You know the basil's are an activated node as well. You can cut them close to the base of the vine. And you know you can use everything like rooting powder. I know people who they just root them in pure water. Um, you can root them, you know, just by putting in some sphagnum moss. And really, as long as you're able to keep the that that cut point, like you want to make sure it's kind of cleanish, and also you want to make sure that it doesn't dry out. Um, and then it the plant will kind of know, like, all right, I and severed from the root system, it'll kind of kick into action. Um, You know, you may see some of the pitchers die off on the the cutting, you know, some of the leaves may die off, but you know, most times it will, if there's enough plant material, it will make a root and it will become its own kind of plant. And so that's been a really good way to propagate things. And that's a really popular way within, you know, the hobby or industry, um, because it's an exact copy of that plant. So if you have a really rare or really amazing looking plant, you can create a literal identical copy by cutting off its basil or cutting that vine that you can then trade with your friends or sell to other people. Because, um, you know, there's a lot of variability within Nepenthes. And even within the same seed cross, like you can have a lot of a lot of uh, um, changes in the picture shape or the pitcher color. Um, so that's been like that's a very popular way to trade things. Um, in terms of the Heliumphora side, which I mentioned, I also grow. So Heliumphora are more of the Venice, uh, from Venezuela and South America. Um, they are the kind of tropical, they're more like pitcher plants. They look like Sarancinia, which are the American pitcher plants, but they're kind of more of the tropical variant. And for Heliumphora, they kind of have a, they come up from the base. They're more pitchers. There's no vines or anything. And you can kind of find a soft break and just break it, kind of like a potato almost. And you can root it, and in a similar process, the plant will know, okay, I don't have a root system anymore, and it'll kick into overdrive and root, and you'll get another plant. So as long as you keep it again moist, you can keep it in similar conditions that the mother plant was, it's a really good way to kind of spread spread the plant love around the people you know. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you sold your seeds and
0: other things like that. What's your process when you breed your plants and crossbreed? are you trying to look for certain traits and mix them with other plants or do you not know what you're going to get when you cross things? So what's your whole process when you pollinate different plants?
1: Yeah, no, that's definitely a great question. So I guess a little bit of a background with, I, I've done more of the Nepenthes breeding than any of the other genesis. Um, you can again breed all of them, but um, I mostly focus on the Nepenthes world. Um, kind of like a back uh, stage information about like the how Nepenthes breed. So there are male and female plants in the Nepenthes world. Um, the kind of challenging thing is that you won't really know what gender your plant is until it gets very large. Most of the times they'll make long vines and at the end of the vine there will be a flower. And um, all Nepenthe female flowers are receptive to any pollen from a male flower. And so, what you can do is that you can kind of mix and match and see what you got, basically. So, for my recent class, um, I had one of my Vichia by Boshiana flower, and it's a female. And one of the characteristics of this plant is that, you know, there's pretty big pitchers, but it has this really nice and striped peristone, which is kind of the opening of the pitcher. And it has a really nice red color. (laughs) And so, some of the things that I look for is like, you know, what are some of the characteristics I want to complement it, you know? So, there are some species that you can you, you know that are very well known for their for their characteristics. For example, Nepenthes truncata is known for imparting um, you know its size, its large size onto its um, into, into its seed. Um, for Vicii, you know that's generally very stripy, and so you can kind of use aspects and it's kind of mix and match basically from what you see. And the nice thing about especially breeding for Nepenthes is that you can really see, especially with those primary crosses. You can really see each of the parents inside of each of the progeny. And that's like something that's really rewarding in terms of growing from seed. Um, so you can kind of like see like, OK, I predict that this is going to be like maybe a really large and stripy version of the two parents meshed together. Um, that being said, you know, you can kind of see there's some species that like, you know, for example, Anermis makes these kind of like teacup type pictures. And maybe that's not as much of a good match with the female plant that I have. So there's a lot of like planning, a lot of thinking like, OK, what, what can you do? What, what is possible? And then another hurdle um, is, you know, finding pollen can sometimes be a little bit difficult. As I kind of mentioned, you know, the flower, it takes a while to get to that point. And so male flowers, you can harvest the pollen, you can store them for a certain amount of time. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're still going to need to find someone with the pollen if you don't have the pollen yourself. And so this is where you know, social media comes in, where you can kind of broadcast, hey, I have this plant. Was anyone interested in sharing or making a cross of this? And so sourcing the pollen, and then once you get the pollen, then you want to make sure that you can, you can make the cross and, again, put that pollen on that receptive side of the, of the female plant.
0: Mm-hmm. So one thing I was just thinking about is earlier you said it, when you take a cutting, it's an exact copy of your parent plant. Do you know
1: the gender of the plant if you take a copy? Sometimes. So if the plant has previously flowered and you make a cutting, you'll, you will know what gender it is. There are some efforts in the tissue culture side, which is becoming a little bit more of a common mainstay in the carnivorous plant world. And I guess there's some ways that you can select based off a of gender, um, even at the seed side, at the seed level. And depending on on where you get it from, and you, you know, obviously, want to get it from reputable places that, you know, there's less chance of maybe mislabeling, then you could know based off of what clone it is, if it's a male or female.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are there any plant species that don't cross like in the Nepenthes world? Is there any Nepenthes that don't cross with each other?
1: For the most part, any like you couldn't in theory pollinate any female with any male plant. Um, there are definitely some spe- specific species or maybe even hybrids that have already been made that are just very known for being infertile. Um, so that's the thing. Like, you know, you could put your pollen on your receptive female, but sometimes the pollen's maybe not viable, it could be too old, or maybe this is as a species, it's just, you know, the pollen is very weak and sometimes it takes multiple goes. Um, Sometimes you have to reapply it and sometimes, you know, freak things happen. You know, if the pollen somehow doesn't get into that small receptive circle on the female flower, then, you know, it won't take. And that's something there's just a lot of variability, unfortunately. And sometimes you don't even know whether it worked or not until you harvest the seed. Because unfortunately, when you um, as when you pollinate it, a lot of the seed pods will kind of blow up over time and, and look like they're maturing. But sometimes you really have no idea if it was successful or not until you break open that seed pod. You know, it could be three to five months down the line and look at, you know, is the seed embryo looking good? Does it look kind of stringy and and maybe kind of questionable? And so there's a lot of different hoops you have to go through.
0: Hmm. So after you take your pollen and brush it onto your female plant, how do you know if you're? if it's like receptive, do you have to wait those five months or are there any like tells in the plant to know what you have?
1: Yeah, so Nepenthes flowers will mature over time. So, you know, it does take time, you you know, when they first open they're, they have the, they have the petals clo- like covering the receptacide for the female side and over time it will open and you'll honestly start to smell it. It's very musky, it has a very particular scent. And then also the female portion will start to get sticky. And that's how you know that it's kind of ready to be pollinated. But you know, there are a lot of times where you may accidentally pollinate too early and then it's not receptive at that time. You know, alternatively for the male side, you know, the, the pollen is powdery at the end of the day. So you have to wait for it to become powdery and you can almost touch it and it will start falling off of the, the, the balls of the pollen. Um, but yeah, you could definitely harvest too early. Um, so there's a lot of timing that goes into breeding Nepenthes. Mm-hmm. So what happens after you put your pollen on the plant? Yeah, so it's a lot of waiting. <laughs> so you'll pollinate the flower and, you know, f- you, the very important thing is in making sure you know what is what. So Nepenthes flowers can be quite large, you know, they could be a foot and you could have like, you know, you could have 50 to 100 individual flowers on that female plant. And each of those can be pollinated with a different, in theory, pollen. And you really want to make sure you keep it separate. You know, for example, on the cross that I made, I put on four or five different pollen. And so I wanted to make sure like, okay, this section is Leviathan pollen. This section is VGI pollen. And being very, very careful to not mix it up is really important. So you can kind of put little like maybe cardboard um, pieces just to kind of separate it. But over the next few months, the pods will start to swell up. Um, you can kind of tell initially after the first few weeks whether or not, you know, maybe you forgot to pollinate one of them and one of the the flowers kind of start to die and, and wither. Um, but the ones that did take, they start to swell up. They kind of like a, they kind of look like an almondy shape almost. And then, you know, it could be anywhere between three to five months. It really depends on the female. Um, some species just take longer to mature their seeds on the, on the seed stock. And then slowly, the the tips will start to brown and get a little bit more blacker. And then um, when they are ready, they'll actually kind of crack open a little bit. Um, In the wild, if this were in Penthes, you know, they would eventually open up. And then the wind would kind of take the seeds away to go wherever. Um, But in captivity, um, the seed pod will kind of crack open. You want to make sure you harvest your seed before it falls out. Because then it becomes unlabeled and you will be kind of screwed on figuring out what is what if they all fall out so
0: after you collect your seed how do you go about sowing them and is there like a timeline of when it's good and when it turns bad or do they store
1: yeah so seeds are a little bit different than other carnivorous plant um, seeds they don't need a hibernation period they don't need a cold period really the fresher it is the better Um, and this is kind of what I mentioned earlier you can assess different seed quality you know you want to look for that nice like kind of golden brown color um nepenthe seeds they have they kind of look like a like a very thin kind of stick almost and then they have a small little dot in the middle and that dot is what is called an embryo and it's really important that you look and make sure you have some strong looking embryos because that's where the information is being stored genetically and then when it strikes and it it germinates. That's where it's going to come from. Um, That being said, you know, there are some different species where the seeds may look a little bit different than the other ones. Um, And sometimes you get germination that you didn't think they would germinate. And sometimes you get really poor germination when you think that the seeds look great. So sometimes there is variability. But in terms of sowing the actual seeds, um, there are multiple ways. There's definitely no wrong way to do this. But the most important thing is just to make sure that they're kept moist all the time. You know, these are tropical plants. The seeds, you know, are very, um, you know, they're still kind of weak when they're at that type of stage. And so the you can use sphagnum moss, which is kind of the main media that a lot of people use f- um, for Um, Nepenthes in general. Um, You can kind of chop it up or mill it or put it in a blender just to make sure that it's very fine. Um, Sphagnum is kind of this long stranded moss and what is a common pitfall I think for a lot of people who are trying to grow seeds for the first time is that they use the long fiber sphagnum they wet it they put the seeds on there but you have to remember that the seeds are also very small and it's really important to keep the contact of the seed to the sphagnum moss because that's how it's going to stay hydrated and not dry out. And so if you imagine if, a lot, if you have a lot of just like long fiber sphagnum, you may have a lot of gaps that you don't actually see on that smaller level in terms of the seed. So really kind of chopping it up really fine um, helps kind of push the seed directly into contact with the sphagnum moss. But um, people also grow Nepenthes seed on peat. Um, it's similar to sphagnum. It's kind of more of like it kind of like it, it looks like dirt, basically, but you keep similarly, you can keep it moist. Um, it really depends. I think people have success using both ways, um, you know, depending on how long you wait to transplant them because you eventually will need to separate them so they can grow on their own. Um, it peat sometimes a little bit easier to separate because you can kind of scoop it like dirt rather than kind of gently pulling away and breaking the roots um, using sphagnum moss. What's your method when you do it? I honestly use sphagnum moss. That's just what I'm honestly most comfortable using and what I've always done. So I figured if it's, if it's not broken, why fix it? Um, but I have sowed on peat before. Um, and I will say I I, re- I got good germination rates on, on both the media, but a lot of due, dig- due diligence needs to go into both doing both ways. You know, you really need to keep it wet. Um, one of the kind of like tips and hacks that I found with growing seeds is that you can keep them in a shallow dish of water. And that's like a very like fighting words in terms of Nepenthes world, because, you know, there's a lot of talk like, you know, Nepenthes don't like to be submerged in water because they can get root rot. They're not bog plants. They're more epiphytic. Um, but I found with the seeds, you know, there are no roots to rot at that And that if you kind of put them in a dish of water, and you know, just when it when it dries out, you, do, you just add a little bit more in addition to spraying them on the top. That really helps the moss stay moist, and so by the time the water kind of wicks up to the surface where those seeds are in that pot, it'll help keep that humidity as high as it can be um, for them to germinate a little easier.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what kind of plants have you crossed in the past, and have you actually seen your plants grow up to where you can? See their pictures. I know that takes a long time, but when was like the first time that you made your first cross?
1: Yeah, so definitely is a long process. So about two years ago, um, that my Vicia babashiana flowered, and I was able to get some pollen, some um, platykyla pollen, which is really well known for its really beautiful uppers, um, upper pitchers, and so I made that cross. We had some really good seed pods. I germinated them and those have been growing out for about a year now and they're about the size of a quarter so I'm really excited to see how they they come about and I feel like they're this year that'll they'll start being ready to kind of start seeing what they look like but it definitely is a long process you know like everything grows kind of exponentially faster but at that early stage of life it it's a long 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 process mm-hmm. um some of the other crosses that I've made, um, I have a, a beautiful um, Talon by Vicii that I got from exotica plants that was a female and flowered. And I put some mollus pollen on it, which is another kind of very stripy, has a very tall peristone stone in terms of body pitcher, And so I made that cross and I germinated those and I'm waiting to see if those germinate. And again, it, with, especially with Nepenthes, you know, the seed and the whole process, it just takes a lot of time. And it's a lot of patience and waiting, which can be hard at times.
0: I've heard that hybrids are a lot easier to grow than the like species-specific plants. What is your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I definitely would agree with that. Um, in terms of species, you have a lot of variability just between the species and you know, if you think about how genetics works, you're getting the best part from your male plant and your female plant. And it kind of, there's this term that we, we kind of throw around, it's called hybrid vigor. And if you have these kind of crosses from, they're more tolerant, you know, for example, there are highland species of Nepenthes and there are lowland species of Nepenthes. Um, lowland species are found, getting kind of closer to the, to that, like, you know, lower part of the rainforest kind of close to the water where it's very hot and humid all the time versus highland nepenthes in the wild are found on the top of the mountains you know again it's still very humid up there because it's the rainforest but it'll get very very cold and maybe not as hot during the day um, so if you imagine there may be a smaller temperature or conditions that you you can find these different types of species based off of their you know lateral um, distribution but, for example, if you cross a highland of a lowland, you really can, in a lot of cases, get a plant that can grow in really a combination of all of these conditions and what we call intermediate conditions. And that's really the strength of the Penthes breeding is that um, as the industry evolves, as the hobby grows, you know, a lot of people don't have, you know, very specific setups. They want to grow their plants on the windowsill. And being able to have these different hybrids and have that hybrid vigor really makes this hobby, I think, more accessible for people. What is your favorite hybrid
0: or species-specific plant of all time?
1: I definitely am a sucker in terms of species for um, Nepenthes vicii. There's so many different types of vicii out there. Um, you'll never find one the same, which I really think is kind of fun. Um, you know, vicii are really cool in the aspect that when they're really small, they, they kind of look like nothing. You know, maybe they have like one stripe or two. They have kind of like a strange looking like pitcher body. But really, as they start getting bigger at that four inch across and then six inches across, It'll kind of go through this transformation process, which is really quite interesting to see in real time. Because each pitcher will get bigger and bigger as the plant gets bigger, and each pitcher will dramatically change. Like for example, I had an epenthes VCI that was very small. It was a very thin and tall um, pitcher, and now, fast forward two years, it's this like almost like very juggy. It's like this. It's the size of like almost like a, a baseball. Almost. It's very stripy. And it's really interesting to see how it changes over time. And even, you know, within that same seed cross, you know, when you make when you make one cross, your seed pod will have, you know, 20 to 50 t- seeds, and each of those individuals will look very different. So it's always really cool to see how is the VCI going to turn out. You know, I may have a sibling of it and it may look completely different. And so that's one thing I really like about the VCI. In terms of hybrids, I would say probably my favorite hybrid. Definitely on top of the list is um, is uh, Hamada by Siana. So Hamada is a Highland plant. They're very well known for having um, these teeth on the pitcher. And similar with Siana, it's a kind of a woody pitcher with teeth. And honestly, a lot of hybrids from these two crosses are kind of underwhelming because a lot of people want to breed and they want to see can you know how can I get the teeth on my pitcher in the in the fine, in the seed pods or in the fin- next generation. Um, but Hamada by Edwardiana, I think, was first released by Wistuba, which is a German nursery. And honestly, every picture that I've seen on it has really surpassed my expectations. You know, I had low, I was like, okay, like, you know, crossing toothy plus another toothy species oftentimes does not mean more toothy. But for Hamada by Edwardiana, I would say that it definitely brings the aspects of both the parents. It's a very dark picture. They're not as, as uh, paper thin as hamada is. And they're also, you know, it's not as hard to grow as a pure hamada. You can grow an intermediate pretty comfortably, and it grows much, much quicker than both the parents.
0: That's awesome. I just looked at those plants that you were talking about, and those are some crazy plants. They look really sharp. Are they sharp or are they not?
1: Yeah, so Edwardiana is a very well-known species. Um, it, definitely is, um, it definitely is sharp on the side like you can touch the pitcher it's rigid the the teeth are actually like points like you can you can break them off hamada on the other side it is toothy but hamada is very papery um so you can kind of squish the pitcher and it it kind of flexes Mm -hmm. but both of them are very toothy that's
0: awesome yeah well thank you so much for coming on i learned a lot and you shared a lot of information that i've never heard before but yeah thank you so much great no thanks again for having me of course anytime well hopefully we can have another conversation soon
1: yes that sounds great all right goodbye thank you bye
0: thank you so much michael for coming on the show today and telling us all about your amazing nepenthes and your breeding and crossing projects and thank you to our sponsors today corals anonymous and aquachar and live aquaria and stay tuned for a new project with Live Aquaria. Thank you.